0: Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. This is a podcast from Awakening Church, a faith community in the Silicon Valley. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Jesus Christ. We're glad you're with us. Today on the podcast, uh, just a really special conversation with Dr. Gary Breshears. Um I intro him in this audio clip, so I won't get into it now, but... Suffice it to say, Dr. Gary Brashears is a legend Um, in the theological community, church community, particularly um, in my life, too, has been a mentor of mine for a long time. We had this conversation over Zoom, and, uh, you know, about 35 people joined us that night on Zoom and thought we could take this conversation and broadcast it here on our podcast channel because we touched on really important and um, difficult subjects on evil, suffering, and God's goodness. How can God be good in such an evil world, in a world that has unpredictable evil like pandemics and then maybe more predictable evil and injustices around um, some of the conversations we're having as a country right now? So how can this happen and how can God be good? Gary uh, paints for us three three pictures of um, how we can think about evil. And I will warn you, it's it's a heavy uh, conversation and a heavy podcast, but um, some deep, deep biblical truth here. And so uh, without further ado, here is our night of Q&A with Dr. Gary Breshears. If you guys don't know Gary, I'm so happy that you get to know him tonight. Gary has been teaching the Bible for decades. I think he's been at Western Seminary since 1980, and um, yeah, and so that was before I was born, if you can believe that or not. Uh, And um, has been faithfully teaching the Bible. He has a PhD in theology. He's the chair of the theology department at Western. Western Seminary kind of spans influence um, from my hometown of Portland, Oregon, where Gary is right now, uh, to the Bay Area. Uh, We have a couple Western students in our midst here tonight, Um, San Jose campus, um, as well as cohorts that Gary has developed in um, Costa Mesa, California. There's one starting in Boise, Idaho. There's one in Alaska. And this is what I love about Gary and what I'll say about, about Gary is that Gary is a true pastor to pastors. We had a a, a joke that wasn't a joke up in Oregon. That was like, Gary's the Bishop of Portland. You know, it was like, he kind of watches over all of us pastors has trained so many of us. And he's, he's really brought that heart to a lot of different communities, including those cities that I mentioned previously, and as well as teaching all around the world. And so, um, He's been a profound voice in my life and helping shape me and particularly shape me around this subject we're going to talk about tonight, which is really a really, really hard subject, Um, the subject of just evil and suffering and reconciling that with God's goodness and i remember uh you know uh i tried to block a lot of it out being in gary's uh classes had to had to go through a lot of therapy afterwards but um no i'm kidding but um we uh we went through so many subjects but i, I will always remember really i think gary it was a whole day we went through this stuff um so we, we don't have that amount of time today but we went through st- uh, the book of job and we went through some psalms and we went through the gospels and we looked at all these different areas of scripture and i remember coming away from that day um not only um just a little bit at peace of going oh wow okay it's the bible does um assess and even acknowledge the complexities of life but i i left really comforted actually too in just knowing the truth of scripture and um i just thought for for this subject tonight there might be you know really no better person um to come through than than gary last thing i'll say is that um, that gary is uh truly just a, a local church guy i mean he's a seminary professor but he's been an elder at his church and a preaching member at his church for um for a really long time and uh, he loves the local church and one of the ways he shows that is he's, he's on the board for the bible project so you guys know um the videos that um are produced by the Tim and the team there. And so um, Gary's heart is just to, man, pour into the local church, help the local church. And that's why I'm glad he's here. So Gary, after all of that, um, would you start with just your kind of framing of this problem of evil, as we call it, um, and how the Bible addresses it and just take us from there to set a foundation. Mm-hmm. And then guys from there, it's it's gonna be an open Q&A. I have some questions I'll throw to Gary, but we'll also say to you, feel free to um, ask any questions. Gary is open to having you unmute your mic and speak up. If you wanna remain anonymous, you can just private message me uh, and I'll take care of it and end up asking it to Gary as time allots. We have till, till nine o'clock tonight. So hope you all are comfortable. Gary, I'll let you take it. Here we go. Well,
1: you missed the most important thing about me, Chris.
0: Yeah, I know, but I figured you'd say, stuff. I've, your family.
1: I've been married to my pretty wife, Sherry, for 52 and a half years. We just celebrated our 52 and a half anniversary down at Depot Bay. Uh, we've got uh, two bio kids, an adopted daughter, and uh, oh, seven or eight non-legal kids. Uh, Sherry and I collect kids, about 35 bonus kids, and the uh, so our family gets complicated, but very, very fun. <clears throat> and, uh, so when I think about the problem of evil, I mean, the obvious thing is the basic thing. God is good. God is powerful. Evil exists. You can have any two of those three, but you can't have all three of them is the basic thing. But the reality is God is good and God is powerful and evil absolutely does exist. How in the world he makes sense of that, even more so what happens when I'm there? the target of evil. Uh, We just had the fires up here. Uh, uh, I'm going to be in an all day. Some people want to call it an elder retreat. It is not a retreat. It's a day-long strategic planning session. Uh, But we've done those at a really, really nice house down on Detroit Lake, uh, south of here. Well, that house just got burned in the fire that went through there. And the guy in our church that owns it had put an enormous amount of work into that, and it's gone. And uh, they lost a beloved dog in the process that was almost like a kid to them because it was down there. They had uh, had some, uh, their house up here really doesn't do that big dog and they were down there a lot. So I had somebody else watching the dog down there and just taking care of it uh, and the dog didn't survive the fire. I mean, those all kinds of stuff like that. What in the world is going on there? So what I want to do is just set up some Questions, of approaches, I'm going to type some stuff out here. You'll see it. I'll send this to Chris along with a lot of other things. But what i want to do is take about three basic approaches uh, to the whole question of evil and then some different types of suffering and then some scriptural stuff, how I put it together. And uh, at several points long here, I'm going to say, hey, got comments or questions? That's your invitation to throw in so one of the approaches here is uh, the term for it is meticulous providence and this isn't my term this is just what it's called and meticulous providence providence is the idea uh very simply uh the idea is god let's see it this way uh God ordains, decrees, plans all things. Uh, and here the big thing is the acts of the devil. But it's all things, all facts of history are ordained or decreed or planned by God uh, for uh his greater glory and our ultimate good, so everything that happens uh includes the most horrific evil uh it has a purpose behind it so uh even Let's put it this way. No evil happens without a divine purpose. There is no wasted pain. Everything that happens has a good outcome coming from it. Uh, Another phrase that God, God uses what he hates to accomplish, not spelling very well tonight, what he loves. So that's the basic idea of this view. Uh, every, every single action, no matter how horrific, uh, is planned by God. He doesn't cause it directly, uh, but there's nothing that happens. There's no randomness. There is nothing, no mistakes. God is too good to do evil and too wise to make a mistake. Uh, so that the the paradigm here is the cross. So in the cross, you have people who are Uh, violating God's command not to murder, they're violating his murder command, uh, but in that process they accomplish his redemption plan. So people commit sin, and, you know, I would argue perhaps the worst sin ever uh, in crucifying the Messiah, but that accomplishes God's greater glory of showing his grace in the cross and accomplishes our ultimate good by achieving redemption. So, comments, questions on this first one? Knowing there are two more to come.
2: I have a question. So in the three approaches that you're presenting, all true and just different interpretations of what's happening or because this really doesn't sit that well with me really? this
3: why not sure uh why
2: well i listen to a podcast called my favorite murder and it basically talks about a lot of true crime and this makes me feel so sick hearing all those stories that have happened to people that that god is using this to accomplish what he loves and so like yep. i feel Really
1: ill about this. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And the P no, I this is not my view, just to clarify. These are three different views. You cannot hold all three of them. You're gonna, and these are not disjointed views. There's actually a spectrum, but they tend to clump. This would be the Calvinist view. And the thing here is you take something horrifically evil, you know, and and one of the stories that just come to mind. And I a lot of past works, I see stuff, but there was a story that happened here a while back where a church leader in an evangelical church turned out to be a a child abuser. And he was abusing his son in such a way that the little boy ended up in a uh, life-taking abuse situation. And over a period of about 10 days, Uh, This little boy died in horrific pain, unmanageable pain. And this view would say, yes, that does happen. But in this view, God has some good purpose behind it, though we may not do it. And I see your response, Sarah. It looks like you're about to puke right now. (laughs) Uh, But this view would say, yeah, it's, it's horrible beyond words. God actually hates it, but it also accomplishes what he loves, and we may never see what it accomplishes, but the view here is there is a divine purpose, and I can rest in that. Other people say if God's doing that, he's the devil, and I'll never worship him.
0: It's so great that you start with this view, Gary, because it always just makes the room feel sick.
1: <laughs> Other people, this is a view. I mean, it makes sense. But yeah, there's the I, cause.
0: Yeah, and and one thing I know, um, our our mutual friend John Furman says is that actually, when people suffer themselves, most people go to that view first, right? Because their their question, "Why could God allow this to happen?" is a meticulous providence view. So when people suffer, they most always become a Calvinist. Yep.
1: And the point here, it's not a mistake. God is doing something in this. There is no wasted pain. Uh, the pain's going to happen. And this is saying that God has a purpose for it. Uh, and sometimes we get to know the outcome. Other times we don't. And for many people, this is very comforting. For others, this is the reason for having nothing to do with Christianity, if this is true because God is this sadistic monster uh, from other people's perspective. So emotions will not work. Uh, your emotions are going to be messed up by any of these. But I'll tell you which one is true, and this one isn't it. Though, uh, I, I mean, people like uh, Tim Keller or John Piper or Bruce Ware or uh, Matt Chandler, they would all hold this view and hold it strongly other questions before i go on
0: i think keller would be a little bit more i mean unpack the other three views but Mm -hmm. i i don't think he's as meticulous as piper
1: he well he doesn't he doesn't say it okay see what keller does keep the main thing the main things and he doesn't go into these kinds of stuff but his providence view is god is ordaining everything he just doesn't talk about it from that way because he, he's been very focused in his preaching and such, and this isn't one of them.
2: I follow Matt Chandler on Instagram. I don't feel so good about this
1: anymore. <laughs> oh, this, yeah, this is when Chandler went through his cancer, this is the way he was understanding it. When he was having the brain cancer, this was his go-to, and it actually hardened his view, of, or it solidified his view. I didn't mean hardened, and, uh, and he's there. And Chandler's a great guy. I mean, he is just a phenomenal pastor and very wise man, uh, and wrong on this. In my not even slightly humble opinion. May I I
2: clarify something? Um, I just wanted to clarify that you said that God um, does not do this evil, right, directly.
1: Sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. Okay. But not always. Uh, he sends, uh, well, example in, in Acts chapter twelve, Herod uh, takes the praise. You know, I am God, and God sends worms to his belly out. So it'd be a place where God causes the suffering directly, and he, he would do it on as judgment on sin. He wouldn't. He'd would never do this to an innocent person, but sometimes God causes the suffering. You know, the fiery serpents in Numbers 21, God sent those fiery serpents on sinful Israel, and they were getting bitten, and it was bad. So sometimes He does, but more often He doesn't. People do what they want to do. In this view, God would never, He would never force somebody to do something sinful against their will. I should write that in here. Uh, In this view, uh, He would never, or someone to do something sinful against their will. Okay, you too. Uh, free will providence, In this view, uh, God uh, allows uh, all things, uh, and this again would include all the acts of the devil, for sake of free, loving relationship. He wants people to be with him uh, out of love, and for uh, that love to be meaningful, there has to be the possibility of a no, or the yes to be real. Uh, So in this view, uh, pre-decisions always have a, a yes and a no Involved. Unfortunately, the no here means uh, means a sinful choice, and the choice to join the agenda. The yes means entering freely into God's love. Something like that. Um, he always honors our freedom. So he will punish punish persistent sin eventually in hell. always honors our choice, because that's essential to a love relationship. So, uh, there's several women in the group. I'll let you in on a secret. Every teenage boy, when confronted with the frustrations of the girl who doesn't give a rip about him, who he desperately wants to like him, has thought about going out and getting a drug to force the girl to love him or to hypnotize her so she'll say, yes, whatever you want. I may creep you out, but girls, it's true. Every young man has thought about, in the frustration of girls that will not do what the guy wants her to do, as a thought, let me go out and get a hypnotic trance to hypnotize her so she'll say yes to me. the thought experiment, do you think that would be satisfying uh, seven years into a relationship? The answer is no. You know? Uh, no. Uh, now, Chris has done that. We know that he has manipulated uh, his right. <laughs> uh, maybe not. No. 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 Uh, but see, the, for a satisfying relationship, and, you know, Sherry and I have been at it a long time, uh, five and a quarter decades, and uh, we have a good relationship, we enjoy being together, uh, we're as different as two human beings can be, uh, but there's always that possibility. And just the fact that she said yes to me a long time ago and continues to say yes to me is, is deeply satisfying and really enjoyable. And, you know, I don't live in any fear of her saying no to me because we know each other so well. Uh, But there's always, I mean, there is the possibility of her saying no and getting a better offer. Uh, So the satisfying relationship is when somebody says freely, I want to be with you. And that's the heart of this thing is that God uh, 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 calls yes or a no. But when you say no, you're actually aligning with the devil and you're aligning with evil that is in the long run, in shorter long run, is going to be uh, deeply hurtful and causing suffering. So this would be C.S. Lewis, uh, this would be uh, Philip Yancey, uh, this would be many, uh, Jack Cottrell, prime theologian, uh, Ben Witherington, Asbury. Chris uh, Craig Keener would be another well-known author. Many uh, pastors would hold this view. C.S. Lewis would be one of the best-known and very very well-done people who holds this view as a personal view, but many others. Questions, comments. This is John three sixteen. God gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world could be saved through him. But it's our belief, we have to say yes or no to come to him. Comments, questions? So, we go ahead.
3: I, I so I feel like this one doesn't answer all the questions the first one does though so like for for at least for suffering or something like that so I I lost a baby I was pregnant several months and then lost the baby yep I didn't do anything well as far as I know I didn't do anything wrong like I was treating myself properly I wasn't drinking a ton of alcohol I wasn't so this one doesn't really answer that like my yes no like I I I'm married. I did it properly. Like all that stuff sounds like I did it properly, but then I still lost a baby.
1: Right. In this view, this view would say it's a broken world and stuff happens. Okay. And because this backs up a little bit, God allows stuff to happen. But part of this would be a broken world type thing. Where in the first view, God is controlling. There's no rebellious Adam in the entire universe. In this view, yeah, there's stuff happens. And it's not because God has said yes or no to it. It just happens. He is allowing stuff to happen. So it distances himself from evil, which was making Sarah want to puke. Uh, But in this view, it's like, well, God, why don't you do anything? And his answer, well, I need to let things go. You don't want to be a control freak, do you? Is that at all satisfying to you, Ivy?
3: I I like this theory better than the first one for Sarah's reasoning too. But at the same time, I feel like I parts of this one don't really jive with what's happened in my life either.
1: <laughs> the downside of this one, it sure sounds like God doesn't care. Uh Uh, if you i don't know how many read paul young's shack which was tremendously popular here 10 or 15 years ago still pretty widely read and his he it's the ladybug killer in there and the the blow off to the story is uh the the dad is asking god where were you and the answer is i was there the whole time and that's very comforting in the book, where the story is told, I look at it and say, well, why the blanketed mind? didn't you do something if you were there? I mean, talk about silence as violence. You know, to be there as this little girl is being savagely murdered by the ladybug killer and just be there and feel sad about it, you know, that's just not, that doesn't satisfy anything. Like I say, there's emotional downsides to all of these, and there's emotional satisfaction because God is there and caring, but He ha- He can't stop things from happening because then there would be no no possible, and only a yes would come out, and relationships would not be satisfying. You got it. Okay, one more. And this will not be satisfying either. Just note. I so a third view, and so active providence. In this view, God uh, is at war. With evil. This would include all the acts of the devil. Uh, he is at war with it, uh, using good as his primary weapon to overcome. So sometimes he uh, actually ordains evil in judgment on sin and allows evil to work within limits So in this thing, the keyword is at war with. Up here, the keyword is allows. And up here it's ordains, degrees, plans is the keyword. So in this particular view, and truth be known, this is my view. Uh, when I look at scripture, if I go to first John. Uh, he says here uh, we make to practice sinning as of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning so that beginning would be the Genesis 1.1 beginning and what this is saying is the devil was already sinning when this universe was created so in this particular view uh the uh devil fell prior to fall Actually, not a good word the devil rebelled prior to the creation of this universe so humans were created in a war zone to work with God in crushing the serpent. And the, the first thing God does is give humans the mission of creating more blessable image bearing covenant partners who will create communities of justice and mercy and faithfulness and beauty and those kind of stuff and so back here in first john the devil had been sinned beginning. the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and this picture is a fundamental purpose god is at war with the works of the devil And a very fun passage is Romans 16, uh, where Paul's concluding the book here. And he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And you recognize Genesis 3.15 there. So God of peace will soon crush Satan. But whose feet? Whose feet?
0: Your feet. Who is that? I think it's me and you.
1: Uh, Yeah, just me and you, Chris.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) So this is God's plan is to crush the serpent and create a... that's the third view. Okay. Comments, questions? You got one more thing to show you here before we just open up for a bazillion questions. So God ordains. Everything has a divine purpose behind it. God allows, which backs him off and has him much less involved in evil. God is at war with. And the 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 problem, of course, in this third one. I mean, it's an obvious problem. You know, is the problem here is how long, O Lord? And that question runs all through Scripture. How long, O Lord, until you do something? So when you come back to uh, Psalm thirteen, for example, David. You know that there's the question, right off the bat: How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must take counsel in my soul and sorrow the heart? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? That's the agonized cry. How long, O Lord? That's Psalm. You go to Revelation uh, chapter six. And the fifth seal, you see that under the altar, the souls who have been slain for the word of God and the witness they've borne, and they cry out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, how long before you stop the evil? Uh, Habakkuk.
3: uh,
1: Habakkuk chapter one begins with, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you do not hear a cry violence and you do not save? It's all through scripture. And it's an agonized, very real cry, is, why do you stand far off? Why don't you get down here and do more than you're doing? And uh, there isn't an answer to it, but the idea is that he is using good as his primary weapon. And uh, But there will come a day when the rider on the white horse will come and, uh, and shut the system down, but when he does that... A whole lot of people are going to go to hell. So three basic views. Comments, questions? Your turn. i got plenty to say, but I want to hear what you're thinking.
2: I have a question. Sure. Um, So I went to um, a Nazarene seminary, Mm -hmm. and I think that we've traditionally as nazarenes always held the view of the second one i would say sure. yep. um, and like that's how i tend to usually describe things and as you went through them i was like yeah i felt like at first i was like yeah i feel like i resonate with this and then i explained it further i was like okay, now i have more questions and i understand the point of the third one which i feel like my heart resonates more with but it left me with the question of you know he's at war with evil but evil is then carried out through humans. So does that mean that people who then, you know, carry out the evil here on earth, are they then partnered with the devil? And okay. that's where I find myself wrestling is like a person partnering with the devil also <laughs> sits very wrong in my soul. And I'm like, you know, there's an act of the free will. And I think that people, people um, commit sin I would say not intentionally to be evil, but because their hearts aren't founded in Christ. And so I wouldn't say that they're evil with the devil, but they commit this and God allows them to through the will. So if you could just help me unpack that a little bit. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh the uh people there are absolutely evil people. Uh I'm working with a, a family right now that have a, a late elementary age uh, son, and these are usually boys, but not always, uh, who is murderously evil. And he did nothing and he'll set off and he's ready to kill his sister. I mean, literally kill her and has to be restrained. He's been to doctors, psychiatrists. We will do an intervention next week, probably, to see if there's demonic stuff involved. But he's just murderously evil and he's, you know, 11 years old. I, I think of sex traffickers. I live in Pornland, And these are men and women who entice cute 15-year-old girls to come in and do their stuff in before very long they're in the back rooms being used by powerful men in most incredibly evil ways for the in wealthening and such and the pleasure of the men who come in it's not just men but mostly and it's just pure evil there's another word for it and uh, now a lot of people you know they're not evil they're just sinful and in angry and such but there is absolute true evil and that's who god's fundamental and they cause a lot of damage a lot of damage
2: so then what are the souls of those who are evil because i've always come from the place of like people commit evil acts but people themselves are not evil and again this most likely has to do a lot with my background and my upbringing of this right um perspective like i'm a pastor's kid my brother is also a pastor so i'm very much in that vein of like upbringing um but yeah it does leave those questions and so I, i i struggle thinking of a person of themselves are evil and then how do they become evil if he's 11 years old how did he then become evil um because god is good and if god is good and god creates us in his image and we are the image of good then how do they become evil just I, I don't like that's really hard.
1: Yeah. That's some of the broken world syndrome and you know and stuff like this, I mean you don't know. Uh in I mean it's complicated. Hey Lauren. I uh, my friend, I the uh well again, my adopted daughter Cindy. Uh so I this over here is my adopted daughter, Cindy, She and the rest of my family. So this is my grandkids, my older son, my younger son, my pretty wife, and grandkids. Cindy is our adopted daughter. Uh, she spent the first 25 years of her life in hell. She was the party favor at her dad's drunken brawls at uh, two years old. And uh, every when she's here, she doesn't live with us anymore. But when she's here, and it's true, every time she sleeps, she has horrific nightmares because of stuff done to her in the first quarter century of her life. Evil is not an out there thing. I live with the product of evil. My wife was abused as a girl by her dad, sexually abused. Uh, now, Why do they do it? Yeah, but there really is evil. And that's actually hard for people to believe because so many of us have been sheltered from the, the evil that's in the world. And this is saying it's very real. I mean, Jesus, one of the things that intrigues me is uh, Jesus, when he's talking about things, talking to the Pharisees, who are the pastors of the day, they're saying Abraham is our father. And he said, well, no, if, if you where Abraham's showing, children, you'd be doing stuff. You're doing the works your father did. He said, uh, but he comes along and he said, well, I'll tell you what, you are of your father the devil, and you're willing to do your father's desires. That's Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who are the, you know, the kind of goodest guys around. Your father is the devil. And uh, he was a murderer from the beginning I tell you the truth, and you don't believe me. So that's the thing. You do what you do because you're acting out your family heritage with the devil. So Jesus speaking.
0: And, and this is where I actually think that it, the third view, Gary, provides a little bit of help, which is all people are made in God's image. That's correct. But image bearers um, are deceived and even inhabited, uh, by a power greater than them, Mm -hmm. uh, that causes the works of evil and the evil desires, you know? And I, I think about like, even when Jesus calls, you know, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he really is talking to Satan, you know, which, which I've always thought to be a helpful way to balance people's inherent humanity and, 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 um, dignity as image bearers and, and even um, access to repentance and redemption, which we all, which we need to preserve in that doctrine, that people who do evil acts and and have intense evil in them are not, no one is, is, is unrescuable. No one is irredeemable. Yep. Um, and that's what makes it Attractive is there's God warring against evil and the father of evil who has deceived his image bearers and led them astray. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've had the good privilege to see some horrifically bad people come to Christ and be completely changed. Cindy, by the time she was in her 20s, was a perpetrator of evil. She wasn't just a product, and a part, it was her abuse but she she was doing really bad stuff and uh, she came to christ in a most dramatic way and uh, you know i know where she's at now she works at Cannon beach conference center if you're up here you can go see her i uh, and i've seen the change in her life we were a product of that but we had to fight for her life we really didn't but there's no one in this view in my view There is no one who goes untouched by the calling and drawing of God toward goodness. There is no human being who is untouched by the grace and kindness of God in a way that they can turn and come toward it if they will allow that drawing to have impact in their life. And uh, I just, I mean, I've got... A bunch of stories of. I mean, Paul was killing people and thinking it was the right thing to do. And he says, "If I can do that, chiefs of sinners and be saved, there's nobody who can't be saved." And it's really true.
2: I have a question. So, when you say that no one cannot be touched, can somebody in isolation be touched? I guess, yeah, that's that is true. I answer my own question.
1: I think God's kindness. God's justice shows itself to every single human being. The John 16 says the Spirit of God convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I think every single human being is touched by kindness. And I've listened to many stories of people who just out of man, this is so so violent here. I just wish there were kindness somewhere. And uh, they get a vision of a white man who tells them and they it's Jesus who shows up in a vision, or a missionary or a friend who shows up. God sends uh, people to give more of his message of Jesus to those who want to know more about that kindness. And uh, so that's sort where of the allowing, God tends to hang back a little bit. This one, God is actually going on and fighting for the souls of people, but he's doing it with good and kindness.
0: Gary, there's a question in the chat about mm-hmm. Luke 13, okay. one through five. Um, and it's just asking for your thoughts. And um, okay. Rich, I don't know if you had anything further on that, but this yeah. is the the passage about the tower mm-hmm. falling on people. Yeah.
1: yeah. What's your yeah, question? I just
0: don't understand. So thank you. Because I yeah. thought, gosh, I've never understood the scripture.
1: Okay. I. It's talking about a you know, horrific time, the Galilean whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate is this really, really bad guy who's killing these Galileans and mixing their blood with their sacrifices in the temple. And uh, I mean, they have been horribly, horribly tortured and abused. And Jesus said, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And... They suffered, but they weren't evil people. They just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Jesus said, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the point of it is everyone has a chance to repent. And if you don't repent and come to Jesus, then you die without Jesus. And then he gives another crazy story. 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Now, I would look at that and I'd say, well, that sure sounds like an accident to me. You know, a tower wasn't built right and it toppled over and killed 18 people or the fire that's running in Irvine right now that may, who knows what that will do is that thing goes crazy. The fire is there in the Bay Area. I mean, I, I've had people at, uh, oh, Camp, what's it, uh, Twin Lakes Camp up in the mountains, completely burned, people killed. Uh, It sounded like an accident to me. He said, do you think there were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Do you think they were killed because they were particularly evil? No. No, they were just normal people and a tower fell on. them. They got killed by a bad guy. But his point is, unless you repent, you're all going to perish. It's not because you're particularly bad. What he's saying there is you have the chance to come to Jesus and receive cleansing for your shame, confidence for your fear and forgiveness for your sin. So that's his call there. And he's using these two horrible stories to say, you know, stuff happens to everybody, but you have the option of repenting and uh, coming into life with that. I think that's what it's saying. Other questions? You're all saying, I'm really sorry I came tonight. I'm so depressed. Now I'm ready to go cry the rest of the night.
0: I have another. Where does Romans 8.28 fit in here?
1: Okay. Romans 8.28. Good question. Uh, so, uh, you're good idea. Let's just see what the Bible has to say. We've been talking about all this philosophy and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, what what does the Bible say after all? All right. So let's just look at this here. We know, what we're asking is, what is the relationship between God and all things? So according to the Bible, forget all this philosophy stuff and all the theology stuff and all these three views and that kind of nonsense, What is the relationship between God and all things working? What's the relationship according to the Bible? What is it, Rich? What is the relationship between God and all things working? What's the relationship? He causes all things to work together. So he's causing all things to work together. Which of the three views does that
0: sound like? One of the other ones, sorry. <laughs> that,
1: that, that's the first one. Okay. I mean, that's meticulous providence. God ordains, plans, all things. There it is in the Bible. God causes all things to work together for good. So that settles the question. I mean, just it just says it in so many words. God calls all things to work together for good. Okay, so let's just look at the Bible. Forget all this theology and all this kind of stuff. Let's just read the Bible. Okay, we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him. So, forget all this theology, three nasty views, that kind of stuff. What is the relationship between all things and God working for good? What is the relationship? See if you can read what it says there. What is the relationship between all things and God working for the good? See, we've got God working for the good. We've got in all things. What's the relationship between all things and God work? God's working
2: for those who love Him.
1: Yeah, He works for the good of those who love Him. That's that's very clear. But the all things. What's the relationship between God working? and all things. What does it say there? In all things, God is working for the good. See, what kind of idiot would say that God causes all things to work? Because the Bible clearly does not say that. It says that in all things, God works for good. So all things is a context in which God works good. See, only an idiot would say that God causes all things to work for good, because it just—it's obvious. All things is a context in which God works for the good. Okay, so see, that's what helps you. Just read the Bible. Uh, So let's read the Bible here very carefully. For those who love God, all things work together for good. So what is the? what is the relationship between God and all things working for good? According to the Bible, what is the relationship between God and all things working together for good? What's the function of God in this sentence, you grammarian types? What's the function of God in this sentence? Is it a subject, an object, adjective? What is it?
2: I'm going to say object. Of what? Love, the verb.
1: Mm-hmm. So this tongue, those who love God. God is not the subject of a verb at all. So God is not working anything here this is for those who love god all things work together so this is removing god from the all things working together this is a very hands off kind of thing god is this object those who love god for those who love god all things just work this this sound like you know things just happen so now to show you what i've done What I did there is I just used three different translations. So I started with New American Standard. We know that God causes all things to work together. That sound like view one. Then I went to in all things God works for good. That sound like view two. And then I ended up with ESV, for those who love God, all things work. And that sounds like view, like the free will view. So the thing of it is, there's an ambiguity built into this passage. And uh, so the New American Standard reads it in a more Calvinist way. This leads it on a less direct working way. And this one actually follows the Greek wording and doesn't have a subject for work at all in the way the grammar of the sentence is put together. So Romans 8.28 is read in very different ways by different translators. And that's what happens, we bring an interpretive context many times to key passages and we read the passage with our theological lens on. And then, well, it's so clear. The Bible says God causes all things to work together for good. But yeah, if you're reading the American Standard, it says that. But somebody else who's reading NIV says, wait a minute. No, no. In all things, God is at work. It's a context in which God is doing his thing. It doesn't say he causes all things. And it's a, your theological grid will direct you toward a particular interpretation of that passage and that's often the case
0: and another reason to not hang all of our theology on one really popular verse right i like the way you put it gary there's ambiguity built into the passage and i think that is helpful because we need to take that passage for sure with the weight that it has but throw that into the mix with Old Testament narrative, Psalms, yep. Jesus' teaching that we just looked at in Luke 15, or Luke um, 13. 13. Yeah.
1: Let me give you a, a a narrative that will work no matter which one of these three views you come down on. And I've come down on the side of the what we call active providence, God is at war with evil, because I think that's run all through Scripture. There are times, like the cross, where God ordains true evil, murdering the Messiah for his greater good. That's certainly true. And there are times when God allows things to happen and kind of backs away and lets it happen, Satan attacking Job, for example. But on the whole, I think God's overcoming with evil. God's overcoming evil, and good is his primary weapon for doing that. When people look at the problem of evil, the answer is either God's a wimp or God doesn't care. Remember, powerful God, good God, evil exists. Some people deny evil to keep a good, loving God, but evil pops you in the face pretty regularly. Some people deny his care. Some deny his power. And so God is a wimp. He just didn't, you know, he's not enough of a God to do much. He's doing the best he can, but I mean, it's a big, difficult world. Or more likely, people deny the goodness of God and say, you know, he really doesn't care. He is just standing off being the CEO or something. And when when I hear those kinds of things and I hear them regularly, especially people are exiting Christianity. They're saying, well, you know, I, I was a worshiper of God, and my baby died. And uh, I prayed to God, and nothing happened. And there was no presence of him, nothing. And I would just, you know, I just can't worship a God who would let that happen. You know, God didn't care. And I can see a conclusion if you're looking, because Satan wants you to look at the awful thing and say, what kind of God would allow that to happen? And it's a legit question. What I suggest is let's look at Jesus. And then ask the question, what was Jesus doing before he was born in Bethlehem? What was Jesus doing before he was conceived in the womb of Mary? And the answer is... What was Jesus doing before he was conceived in the womb of Mary? Lauren, what's the answer? I'm going to pick on my friend here.
3: I never know the answers to your questions, Gary.
1: Oh, this one you should.
3: Oh. uh, What was
1: he doing before he became incarnate?
3: He was with the Father. Exactly. Yeah. What
1: was his 401k looking like? His retirement plan. Looking there in heaven, he's sitting on the throne of the universe.
3: It was looking pretty good.
1: Looking pretty good. His health care plan. He didn't have to worry about them taking away, you know, his prior condition. All that. And and life was good. In fact, life was really good because, like, he was God. So he goes up here. From everything is great. He gets born. What's the first thing that happens to him after he's born? some guy named Herod decides to what? To kill him. So Joseph gets worn in a dream and Joseph takes him to Egypt. He is now a political refugee. Think of Syrians living in Germany. Think of Guadal- uh, people from uh, Guatemala living in San Diego is illegal aliens, or undocumented workers, depending on your political perspective. I'm more on the side of undocumented. But you're living there without papers. What's your life like? Bad. Bad. You're being exploited by crew bosses that know you're undocumented and know they can turn you into ice at any moment. Your life sucks. That was Jesus' first experience to be a political refugee. Herod died, he goes back to Nazareth. Now remember, this is the king of the universe. He goes back to Nazareth, and he is living under crushing poverty. Poverty worse than no American. It's impossible in the United States of America to live under the poverty that Jesus lived in every day. We have too many safety nets. This is the king of the universe who's living in crushing poverty. And then he goes out on the playground with the other boys. And what are the other boys saying to him? Hey, bastard boy, where's your daddy? What do you call that?
2: Bully.
1: Yep. <laughs> yep. You do know the answers. Yeah. So he is being a political refugee and Ill- illegal alien to put it in the negative term, crushing poverty, oppressive military powers that just steal and rape and pillage anytime, anywhere, wherever they be. He's bullied on the playground. I mean, put all that stuff together. And then he goes to Jerusalem. How do things work out for him in Jerusalem? Constantly attacked. And he ends up, the high priest's soldiers, the high priest tells us, remember, this is the king of the universe. This isn't some poor helpless guy. The king of the universe allows the high priest's soldiers to take him captive, take him into the back room, and the high priest says, get him. Now, I know from stories of friends of mine who served in in military, and I know from people I know who've been in gangs, when the boss says getting, they don't just beat him with a stick. He was, I'm absolutely convinced he was sexually assaulted in the back room by the other men, because that's what men do to men. When the, when the boss says getting, humiliate him. So he was beaten, crown of thorns and all that, but I'm personally convinced that he was sexually assaulted in the back room because that's what men do. Who is this? This is the king of the universe. And then he goes to a cross where he's tortured, naked, shamed. The king of the universe. And when somebody says to me, you know, I don't think God cares. I just point to Jesus. If he didn't care, there is no way in the world he would be down here. He'd be back in heaven watching stuff happen. He didn't do squat for me. Actually, he died for you. And rose to bring life into our context of death and gave us the Holy Spirit to go be instruments of his kingdom in the world so we can crush the serpent. That not exact that didn't explain why little kids die. It didn't explain why undocumented Pope get bullied and beaten, and it didn't explain, you know, all the bad stuff. But when I look at that, the heart of this is that the king of the universe, the God of all creation, is going to by his choice come into this world and suffer its worst. That's how much he cares. And then he's going to die and be resurrected and exalted. Uh, he is doing something. It's not that he's doing nothing. And frankly, I find it very frustrating that he wants to overcome evil with good. Because I want him to just kill some people. And I want to kill him right
0: now. Uh, and I think that's an important. I think that's a really important thing you just said, Gary. Because the the ways that we want God to war against evil is usually with evil, and that's, that's correct. we we actually are free to pray that way if we want to. I mean, that there's Psalms about that, and mm-hmm. David prays that a lot. It's not and it's not written off the prayer list. You can certainly pray that way, but God will most often answer us with I'm going to work good against the evil and it's going to take longer to your point about the how long thing Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also going to work in the mysterious ambiguity that we don't understand and I think that's also kind of a key piece in a lot of your teaching which is it allows us to um, to not have answers for all of these things which I think is is something I I would just interject here which is like anytime people start overly explaining evil it usually runs off track because evil is so evil and so preposterous that for us to contain it in in a neat package is never satisfactory right we we think if if i knew why god allowed this in my life i would be happy but there's very little evidence that an explanation would comfort us yeah. what what comforts us is god himself to your point about yeah. elongating the suffering of jesus and really helping us understand that the reason we are comforted is not because jesus, god explained our suffering but because he embodied it and took it on our behalf, which I think is the good news. When I think about what's good news tonight, it's like it's that knowing that God stepped in and bore my sin for me so that whatever I suffer, not only he knows, but he himself has endured.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and a key point, I just listened to a podcast where Eustos Gonzalez who's uh, one of the premier church historians in the whole world he's cuban originally and uh, trained at yale was youngest ever to get a phd at yale in historical theology and he did a, a book on the lord's prayer he's published like a hundred books he's just an amazing man i've never, i'd love to meet him. kind cuban gentleman uh, but he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next line? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next one? Your kingdom come,
2: your will be done.
1: Yeah. See, we just sang a song on Sunday uh, yesterday. It's a little bouncy song. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, kind of thing. It's kind of a bouncy thing. But it's, oh, God, let it happen. No, when we say that prayer, we're signing up to be instruments of making that kingdom happen. We're not standing off and, okay, God, I'm for it. Get down here and do it. No, we're signing up to be crushing the serpent under our feet, which means that we need to be like Jesus and go into the difficult spot and bring goodness into that place, which means we can get some pretty rugged stuff. So when you say that prayer again, you know, it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done, thy kingdom Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're signing up to be instruments of making that kingdom happen. It's not just, okay, God, I'm, re- I'm willing. Give us this day our daily bread. That's not give me my daily bread. It's me involved in other people getting their daily bread. So for me, as an upper class, fairly well to do, amazingly, on a seminary professor's salary. It means I'm helping other people get to the spot where they can have daily bread. We're signing up for being instruments of God's goodness, which means giving up our comfort for the sake of those who have no comfort. And that's a big call. And that's where suffering comes. We can't explain suffering and evil, except it comes at the hand of the devil who's out to kill, steal, and destroy, ultimately. But we can sign up to be instruments of good, and that's the mission of Jesus. And look at all the stuff in the world and say, Oh, there's nothing I can do. Okay. But see, in our case, we we invested in Cindy. That's one of our instruments of mercy was to up to be a redemptive influence in her life and she was absolutely not an asset on our balance sheet when we brought her into her home and into our family uh, she was not she is now but she wasn't then. and we loved on her when she was pretty dang unlovable and uh, it, it was costly but now we've got a beautiful daughter and we get around and horse off. and So when you, when you talk about suffering, we're not looking to understand suffering so much, and we as much as we can. We're signing up to be instruments of good in a context where Satan is the prince of this world and his evil chaos, using people for somebody else's pleasure. Yeah yeah the, the you're right. the Heidelberg catechism is doing that. Speak up, David. You put it in the cat, in the chat. That's outstanding. What tell us what you said?
0: I don't okay. know I don't know if David's here, but he was yeah, he was uh,
1: pictures here and he put yeah.
0: i I'm okay. totally, I was totally muted, Sorry about that. Um, said uh, I've been more recently interested in uh learning more about like reformation and
1: reformed theology right. and I've been diving into this book called The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bavinck. Yeah. And um it's it's a little bit tricky for me as I'm working through it but uh I I did see a mention from him to like kind of the beautiful Description of Providence in this Heidelberg Catechism. And in reading it, I was trying to match it to the three forms you described. And to me, it seemed like a best, well, I don't know, it could be wrong, but it did seem like this uh, meticulous Providence. Absolutely meticulous Providence. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of the great catechisms of the Reform movement. It's absolutely completely view one. Mm-hmm. meticulous providence calvinistic reformed uh, view of election and so on good for you awesome thank you
0: and i i think i think one thing gary i don't want to lose in this is because you did um you know mention some names connected to some of those views um right. these these are historic uh christian right. yep. orthodox views um and so uh, we're we're free at, at, at awakening for example um, right um, various of us come from different backgrounds and see scripture to hold these these views these are ways to talk about suffering gary just thinks wrong unless you're view 3 <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> well, I'm,
1: I'm being i'm being lighthearted at that point yeah. he
0: likes yeah that's what gary likes to say but and and i i think one thing gary that i like about how you've taught me is that um, yeah, there there's there's room for us to kind of debate this. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and it might be one of those things we put into that debate category yeah, absolutely. of things we're we're gonna we're gonna debate over. But these are not um out, outside of the more orthodox understandings of it, there are crazy explanations of evil and suffering yeah. that are, you know, not historically Christian. But so long as um we don't have to divide over these issues, I guess, yeah. is is yeah. um an important thing. And to your point about the catechism, it's a great catechism, yeah. but maybe there's parts of it in which we would disagree. There's so much of it that's that's really helpful and, and maybe challenges us. And yeah. See, we're
1: all going to agree on that narrative story you told about Jesus. We're all going to agree that God is good, compassionate, trustworthy. We're all going to agree that he's present and powerful. We're all going to agree that he's angry at sin, We're all going to agree that he restrains sin. We all agree he's doing good through Jesus Christ. There's so much we agree on, but the specifics, the way it relates to evil, is the thing we disagree on. And it can get pretty hot and pretty emotional uh, in those discussions. But we do it as people who love each other and recognize okay, you're a good and godly person. I think you're nuts right now. Thank you. And uh, those things happen. Yeah, we can love each other as brothers and sisters. We don't have to fight and, uh, yeah, let's sit together and drink some coffee together, whatever your favorite drink is, and wrestle with these things with our Bible open, and uh, that's that's a very good thing to do.
0: And maybe um, I'd love you to maybe close on that, because I did get a question on email just about how do we as followers of Jesus learn to hold the tension of certainty and uncertainty? And so, you know, I think that's related to this question about evil and suffering, but it's also related to many other things. Uh, this person just wrote that it seems like each denomination believes they have a monopoly on Christianity, and everyone outside <laughs> of it is labeled as a false teacher. Felt like you could answer this really well. It might be a good way to, for us to to wrap up.
1: Yeah, there are central tenets: uh, Jesus Emmanuel come in the flesh. His death is a substitute for our sin, for our forgiveness. God is essentially relational trinity. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes to bring unity in the body. The uh, Bible is authoritative, those kind of things. Those we all agree on. We all agree that God is good and his character doesn't change. We absolutely agree on those kind of stuff. Those are the foundations. Somebody says maybe God isn't good or God isn't triune or Jesus isn't really Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Now we got a problem. And uh, and those are the places where you really into, that's where you have to say, you know, you're, we're going to have to separate because you're denying the foundations of the faith. But these things like the view of providence or the date of creation, or can you lose your salvation? Let's just argue those passionately, but as friends with a smile on our face. And we can learn from each other and actually have some good fellowship together at the same time.
0: Super helpful. Gary, thank you so much. Um, I, I I know because I've done this before with you, I, I could go another seven hours as we've done in the past, but... Uh, <laughs> I got to do an
1: all-day elders thing tomorrow. I'm off to bed here you're, a little bit. You guys can going talk <laughs> all night.
0: <laughs> um, I just want to thank you so much, Gary, and um, we just so appreciate you taking the time And developing us as disciples and um thank you so much and um i was just hoping you could um you could maybe just pray for our church awakening church and pray for silicon valley and everybody down here
1: but i do pray for awakening and and just through various contacts i know you're doing some powerful stuff in this good church Pray for chris as he leads others that are a part of that for these people here uh, who are trying to wrestle with these hard topics to learn and be better equipped to answer the hard questions that come up. And I think most of all, Lord, those who are wrestling with the suffering that happened or a fire that burns a home through a, a mugger who steals their stuff or a bully who just makes life miserable in the workplace. Or there's so many places where the, the suffering comes out, and I pray... That you will help us see that you are the good and powerful God who does good in the midst of evil. We all agree on that. Help us to see your goodness in the place where the suffering is at the worst. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit to be instruments of good in the context of evil, of stupidity, of abuse. That we can be part of your work to crush the serpent and bring beauty and holiness and faithfulness and beauty and love, and joy, and hope. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you sometime soon. Thank you. Another
1: time soon, I hope. This is fun.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.